Welcome everyone to tonight's events. I'd like to thank the John F. Kennedy Forum, uh, Junior Forum and the Institute of Politics, and especially the uh, President Paul Kagame and his office for taking the time to join us this evening and to all of you. It is my honor tonight to welcome His Excellency Paul Kagame, the President of Rwanda, to the John F. Kennedy Junior Forum. President Kagame begins to, belongs to an elite group of heads of state who, are, who have spoken here at the forum. Like those before him, we look forward to listening to and learning from the insights and experiences he shares on the challenges of leadership at the highest levels of government in one of the most challenging regions of the world. Challenges of leadership in both times of conflict and times of rebuilding, and then the challenges of leadership on multiple stages, sometimes simultaneously, from the military and the geopolitical to the social, the economic, the local, and even personal. We are delighted here at the Kennedy School to have trained some 56 students from Rwanda over the years, one of whom I learned is on the president's staff here tonight. And we look forward to many more students and other connections with your country, sir. In just a few weeks, Rwanda will mark the 22nd anniversary of the genocide in 1994. In a country of some 6 million people at the time, between 500,000 and 1 million Tutsi and politically moderate Hutu people were massacred over just 100 days in a genocide that horrified the entire world. Paul Kagame became president of Rwanda six years later in 2000 after his predecessor, President Pasteur Bizimungu, who under, him, under whom he had served as vice president and minister of defense, resigned in 1994, or since 1994 resigned. President Kagame faced the incredible challenge of transforming that war-torn country and the sectional hatred that drove that war into a coherent people and nation. Under the leadership of President Kagame, Rwanda has achieved a remarkable level of economic growth that is enviable for the entire region. Close observers have also praised President Kagame's Rwanda as a model of cooperation with international investors and aid programs. He's introduced new industries, and it has become one of the easiest places to do business in Africa. President Kagame was elected to, his, uh, to office for his first seven-year term in 2003, and then re-elected overwhelmingly for a second term in 2010. One of his early signal achievements was to lead the adoption of Rwanda's Vision 2020, a growth strategy aimed at the ambitious goal of achieving middle income status for the country by 2020. Overall, the plan has been recognized as very successful. Rwanda has built a very successful nearly universal health program, has invested in innovative infrastructure projects such as the expansion of high-speed fiber optic and exploring the use of geothermal energy, Information and communication technologies have sped quickly, making Rwanda one of the tech hubs of Africa. And President Kagame has been credited with creating a very positive business environment, and Rwanda is near the top of the list of African countries on the World Bank's Doing Business Report. Of particular interest here at the Kennedy School, one of the central goals of Vision 2020 was to build an effective Rwandan state, a government that can do things and re to reduce public corruption. President Kagame has been credited with much success in this regard on a continent with so many failing or flailing states. So, in your remarks and in the following discussion, we'd love to know how you think Vision 2020 is going, what have been some of its challenges, and what are some of the next steps forward. 
Second, your strong leadership has led to these achievements, and here at the Kennedy School, we seek to train public leaders, and so your own path is of deep interest. For much of your life, you've been a soldier, trained in Tanzania, Uganda, and the United States. You served for many years in the National Resistance Army in Uganda and commanded the Rwandan Patriotic Front. A few months ago, another military man, General Colin Powell, spoke here at the Kennedy School, another soldier leader, and he said that most of what he learned about leadership, he learned in infantry school. So we're very curious to learn how your administration's remarkable accomplishments have, and your own style and lessons of leadership derive from and informed by your military experience. Along with your administration's remarkable accomplishments, however, we know that you have come under some significant criticisms that focus on political freedom and democracy. Political observers and journalists have criticized the Kamikami administration for suppressing dissent and opposition. Reporters Without Borders head Ambrose Pierre told the BBC that Kagame, the Kagame regime is similar to that of China's embracing technology, but controlling and censoring it. There are reports of censoring critical news sites in Rwanda and of imprisoning critics and sometimes worse. Until recently, Rwanda's constitution limited the president to two seven-year terms. In the, toward the end of your second term, which was scheduled to end in 2017, a popular referendum in 2015 lifted the two-term limit and now uh, you've declared that you'll stand for election to a third term, and the Constitution potentially allows you to serve till 2034. I hope that tonight we can engage these complex questions, and in particular whether you and the rest of us here tonight think that there is a difficult trade-off, a hard choice to be made between development and democracy in Rwanda and perhaps other places in Africa and around the world, or whether leaders and societies can push hard on extending democratic freedoms even at the same time as they advance economic development. Please welcome tonight His Excellency President Paul Kagame, President of Rwanda. Thank you very much, Dean. Of the Harvard Kennedy School, faculty and students, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. I'm pleased to be back at Harvard and I thank you all who are here today. I'm also happy to see a number of familiar faces in the audience tonight. Thank you for coming. Um, when I addressed uh, this forum 15 years ago, Rwanda meant quite simply genocide. Our country had managed to survive against all odds. Justice and reconciliation were still a work in progress. But already our policy focus was shifting to the challenge of achieving real prosperity for Rwandans within a generation. I can only imagine how improbable 
that ambition must have sounded at the time. Today, Rwanda is a country transformed. We live with our past, but does not define us or hold us back. Rwanda is a top performer, not only in Africa, but globally on various objective measures of growth, business, climate, health, education, crime and corruption, women's empowerment, trust in public institutions, not to mention perceptions of personal well-being and freedom. We are not yet where we want to be, but neither do we take anything for granted. Ending global poverty is the foremost challenge of our time. While the world has seen astounding progress, some countries have barely advanced. There is no simple explanation for the uneven distribution of gains. The question of economic development remains, in many respects, a complex mystery. But the answer matters. Millions of lives hang in the balance. If effective approaches can be adapted to other contexts, everyone would benefit. It is in this wider context that Rwanda often comes up for debate, particularly with the chicken and egg argument about development versus democracy. Which comes first? Does one impede the other? Why can't it be both? Since the world's most advanced economies also tend to be among its most stable democracies, the logic of this question has never been obvious. Let's state this in stark terms for the sake of argument. Unrecognizable versions of Rwanda are deployed by both development first and the democracy first camps to score points. In the process, truth is swallowed by polemics. Given where we have come from to be scrutinized because of success is a good problem to have. But Rwanda is not a thought experiment. It is a real nation. Most importantly, the claim that development comes at the expense of democracy does not hold up to serious scrutiny. In any society that is composed of human beings, 
prosperity is not achieved without empowering citizens and unleashing their creativity. Development is not a question of more funding and better policy. What is much more important is for those to be connected to the norms, values, and mindsets that guide the choices made by individuals each and every day. Seemingly simple choices, such as keeping newborn babies warm, or building financial security by saving, can have a huge impact. Shared norms, such as intolerance of corruption and discrimination, are the foundation of good citizenship. In Rwanda, public affairs are conducted with the expectation that the views of citizens will be heard and their complaints acted upon. Accordingly, leaders are better off serving with humility through consultation and consensus. Things are done in the open. And indeed, the best data on shortcomings in our country are regularly produced and published by our own public institutions. Good results are impossible to explain without factoring in the trust that exists between citizens and leaders as a result of our governance choices. As democratic space becomes more inclusive, the preferences and the viewpoints of elites and experts have to accommodate other perspectives. This challenge can be quite unsettling, even in the most advanced democracies, as we continue to see judging by current events. Yet, this is what we have chosen to do in our country. People must have, in the formulation of one, you know, Amatya Sen, the, in quotes, freedom to lead the kind of lives that they have reason to value. Rwandans value a politics based on inclusion and accountability. Rwandans value public spaces free of hate speech. Rwandans value unity. We have good reasons to value the choices we make because they respond directly to our past experiences and our aspirations for the future. Rwandans expect important national matters to be handled with care and determination. They would certainly question the legitimacy of outcomes 
decided by others without their participation. Our constitutional order is both distinctively Rwandan and swear within the mainstream of democratic practice. It works for us, and there is ample evidence for that. But it will also endure because the means of renewal and adaptation are provided for. The recent referendum is a useful example. First, what was on citizens' minds was brought out clearly in the course of wide public conversation taking place over years. Rwandans, most of whom are under 30, are more concerned with reaching our potential than sliding back into a dark past. Rwandans wanted what they wanted. And it was striking to see it clearly expressed with wisdom and nuance. Continuity of leadership was found to be as important, given our context, as the principle of term limits which was maintained. When the time comes, and it will be, sooner rather than later, Rwandans will choose a person who has repeatedly proven herself, or perhaps even himself, directly to them. No one can deny that the referendum reflected anything less than the preference of a broad majority of Rwandans. The reaction to it has been instructive, however. First, we see again that in Africa, one size must fit, must always fit all. Every country is urged to be a role model for every other, as if bad governance is a kind of African virus. Second, there is a new democratic fundamentalism that values form over substance. If it is inherently undemocratic to amend constitutions, why do they contain provisions for doing so everywhere? Third, many statements of high principle mask deeper contempt based on unspoken moral hierarchies. The conversation on a democracy in Africa is so dogmatic because deep down, 
we are still thought to be incapable of anything better than mimicry. I disagree. However, as I go, how else to understand the experience which I have often had of being presented with the names of potential successors and then urged to pick one among them, something which I have neither the desire, the power, or the right to do. It's like saying, and this is what has been going on, pick someone we are comfortable with or we'll do it for you. But then, what about all the Rwandans around whom the whole constitution is built? When do they make their choice? Rwanda is moving forward. Our progress is real and is being driven by innovations and institutions that work. Choices that are made democratically for our own benefit and which harm no one can never be a lasting impediment to good relations with the friends anywhere. Whether it is on, the, on global health, business, and investment, or international peacekeeping, Rwanda will remain a principled and reliable partner according to our capacity. The Great Lakes region has experienced one problem after another for decades. There has always been a need to work together with urgency and sensitivity to address at times troubling situations. Extremist rhetoric has gone unchallenged for opportunistic reasons and civilians pay the price. Rwanda, time and again, bears the brunt. Much time has been wasted. There is need to see a greater sense of responsibility, not only from our own region, but indeed from across the world. Thank you for your kind attention. And I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, everyone. I think probably most people have been to forum events before. There are four microphones uh, around the uh, audience area, two on this level, and then in the uh, stairwells over uh, to my left and to my right. So please line up if you're eager to ask a question. In the forum, uh, questions have three characteristics. First, if you're a speaker, please identify yourself. Second, one per customer, as they say, and please be brief. And third, and finally, every question ends with a question mark. 
over here to my left. Mr. President, it's Swanee Hunt. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Rwanda has broken through every barrier in terms of the participation of women in leadership, 64% of the parliament, which is astounding, half the Supreme Court, half the cabinet. As you think about your role as doing a lot of the appointing and certainly a great deal of the encouraging of those women, it seems to me there's a, a combination of thoughts you might have. One is, I just want the most capable person, and I'm getting to choose from 100% of the population. Uh, another is, we care a lot in our eight-point manifesto of the RPF. We say inclusion and participation, and this is a basic tenet of, of who we are. And, and then the third is the idea that, in fact, women are more moderate as a group, and you're thinking about extremists. They tend to be excellent reconcilers, you know, never all women, never all men, et cetera. So I, I imagine it's a combination uh, and of those factors, but could you address that and let us know what your dominant thoughts are about that? I think you have uh, asked a good question, but you have also answered it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the answer lies in the combination. You, you, you consider all of those uh, facts about women, how and why they need to be equally or well represented as men are. And, and those are the considerations. It's, it's about how capable they are, and they are as capable as men, how, uh, but at the same time, the only thing we have to resolve is that of the past, the history where actually women in many societies for different reasons have been left, left behind. Much as they are capable and, and they have lacked capacity because they have not benefited from, for example, education and other things that were supposed to lift them up in building their capacities. So we have to cover that and keep everything, everything else at the same level in terms of rights they must have as women, uh, as men have rights as well. So th these are the considerations we have had to, to make, and, and so how do we advance their capabilities by building capacity in them, by giving them good health, giving them good education that they must have in order to do that. And later on, the laws provide that they should have these same rights as men have and therefore participate equally, which has not been the case before. So really, the, 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 the combination is what matters. The rest is just to make sure that they are not left behind, as they used to be the case. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Mr. President. My name is Sarah. I'm a Tanzanian and a fourth year student at the college. And um, my question to you is regarding the integration of the East African community. I just want to know what your thoughts are on what is the, what is the level, 
how accountable how do you make yourselves as leaders and presidents of this region accountable to your actions while maintaining um, maintaining peace and security and just making sure that as leaders even though you don't want to ac accept blindly the notions of democracy as imposed by other countries, but at the same time, making sure you're making each other accountable because there's a larger, um, a larger region and more people at stake as the integration continues. Sure. Well, first of all, having uh, 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 a process of integration in the region is a good thing for various reasons. Uh, for economic reasons, for political reasons as well. But accountability process begins at home. It starts with each partner state, and then we bring it to the level of the region. If we don't start back at home, and make sure that what is happening in each member country is that, that respects accountability, then at the regional level, we probably won't see accountability happen. But it is a process that we are encouraging, starting from each member country, what is happening there, whatever processes that are going on, and then at the integration level, we talk about that as well. I, I think it's a, it's a process that may take some time, and that time depends on how people get right what they are doing in their own countries. Okay, thank you. Um, hello, President Kagame. My name is Jazal, I'm a sophomore at Harvard College and a member of the JFK Forum Committee here at the Institute of Politics. Many thanks indeed for being here today with us. Um, my question to you is this. You were a milita military leader before you were president. You assumed office in 2000 and have won two elections in 2003 and in 2010. You intend to run another election, which will bring your presidency, in the case that you win, to 24 years of being in office. Despite accusations of human rights violations or censorship of private media, like the BBC following a controversial documentary about Rwanda, how have you achieved the, the unbelievable fet of seeing turnover in presidential elections to be 97%, of which you won 95% of the vote? Mm. Right. Uh, before I became a military leader, I was actually a civilian. I was not born military. I was, uh, <laughs> so then I became that after. So at some point, I'd go back to my civilian life. But many of those things that uh, you, you referred to that have been happening, uh, it's not an issue of uh, those making accusations and me having to defend myself and so on. It goes back to the point I, I talked about. There is tendency for people individually, whatever they are, having their opinions and expressing them rightly in the manner they want. But what I believe counts more for Rwandans is in their hands. The Rwandans, what they feel, 
the choices they make, whatever they want to do, they will do irrespective of what BBC says or what different groups will say. There are Rwandans, that these Rwandans don't forget to bring them to the center of what happens in their country. Now, everything you have said, my being there for how long, in, in fact, maybe I, I don't need to say this because if I said it, you wouldn't in any case believe me, but uh, I have been a victim of being there and doing things I'm supposed to be doing entrusted to me by the people of Rwanda. And so I, I'm becoming a, a victim of a process that has seen success, if you will. And then people say, well, we have had this because of you. We want more of you. And I have actually been pushing back and say, you know what? We have built something that can continue on its own and people can, and it, so why don't we just continue the way we thought it would be done and, and stop thinking that one person will continue to deliver. And they say, well, we, we, we hear you, we understand what you are saying, but give us more time. We don't want to gamble with other good people we, we want to continue with the one we know that has done this for us. So the debate goes on and on and on. And, and um, I, I, for some aspect of the argument, I want to believe that uh, indeed I'm not uh, the only one who can uh, deliver on these good things Rwanda has seen. I'm sure some other people, maybe it's a matter of time we have somebody perform much better than I have. They are going to be better people than me, man or woman. Uh, but the fact is, the process to arrive at that point is being uh, decided by other people other than myself. So what, what do you want me to say? Take the case to the Rwandans. In fact, I have told some people who have, I mentioned it in my speech, who have come to me and said, you know, President, you, you know, you need to go. And you know, I say, you know what? I, I actually need to go. I want it. He said, but you know, so I said, I told some of them, I said, you know what? I want you to help me, and I will help you that you do something. I want to have you come and address Rwandans or even go to their homes in rural areas and convince them that they don't need me. They seem to be thinking that they must continue with me. So come and help me to convince these people that actually they don't need to be there. And of course they say, oh, no, 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 that is your business, it's not ours, and so on. Now, <laughs> so what do you want me to do? Just come and help me to convince these people that they don't need me. And the moment they say they don't need me, actually even before 2017, if they were convinced that they don't need me, I would just go home and sit and, and relax. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So, thank you. Up here. Good evening, Mr. President. My name is Weiwei, and I'm an MPP1 student here. Uh, I'm very glad to meet you again. Because two months ago, me, me and other 25 Harvard students visited Rwanda, and we had a wonderful time there. We witnessed the, the referendum. We visited the genocide museum, and we went to saw those wonderful mountain gorillas. And my question goes to your future uh, foreign policy. As you will be in power for another uh, 17 years after you finish this term, and I'm like, with China. That is an issue <laughs> of interpretation. I, 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 I don't know where, I don't even know why you don't say 50 years. Okay. <laughs> but it is an issue of interpretation. It's not uh, that you are saying, but I'll explain that later. As you'll be, you will be in power for a long, long time. <laughs> so. I want to ask, like, how will you balance the relationship between, I mean, uh, major countries like China and the U.S.? Because China is, I mean, the, maybe the next potential superpower. At that time, because of the difference between China and the U.S., how are you going to balance this re relationship? Thanks. Me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's it. Uh, I think it will depend on how they manage it themselves, the, 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 the Americans and the Chinese. <laughs> so I, I want to keep at making sure that I don't get lost in between. <laughs> so, and the way to do it is to make sure that we do some of these good things back at home and give Rwandans what they deserve and, and their place to work for their own development and, and prosperity. As, uh, but I don't think I'm going to take a lot of time bothering about uh, the relationship between America and, and China and how that impacts me. Uh, there are many things that are impacting me already around me that I need to pay attention to before I come to that. So really, those are some of the things we, we, we don't waste much time on. But you want to be on good side with both of them. <laughs> Very good. Over here, sir. Mr. President, good evening. My name is Gavin Reynolds, and I'm a freshman here at Harvard College. Uh, welcome back to Harvard. Hope it's not too cold here for you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my question to you is, uh, so at the end of the day, if you could pinpoint one item, what would you like your legacy uh, as president to be or the legacy of your administration? It's just simple. People talk about legacy, but a legacy may not mean just one thing, but I try to be brief on that. My legacy is, first of all, how I, have I come to be the president, the leader of my country? How have I served? people of my country, how has the country gained from that leadership and that has enabled the Rwandans to participate and contribute to the future they want. I think ultimately the total feeling of my people will decide on whether the legacy is that to be proud of or not. Thank you. Mm.
Hello, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Clio. I'm a student here uh, at Kennedy School. So my question is a foreign policy one about a country that is very close to Rwanda, both historically and geographically, uh, namely Burundi. Uh, so I wanted to know about the position of Rwanda uh, on the events in Burundi. I know your country received some uh, refugees, and um, also that some there was talk about starting peace talks uh, even this week. Yes. Well, it's a long story. I try to cut it short. You have seen problems in Burundi. Burundi is a neighbor to Rwanda, and not just a neighbor. In fact, there is a, a special relationship between Rwanda and, and Burundi, and special in terms of similarities as well, and, and so on. So when Burundi is doing well, we benefit. When we are doing fine, Burundi should benefit. Uh, and when things go wrong in Rwanda, they suffer. When things go wrong in Burundi, Rwanda suffers. So that's how close we are. But currently, we, we are having a situation. It's a, a dispute internally that started within the party, then went into you know the wider the, the, the ruling party in Burundi, then the government, then there are different factions that started fighting and. So it, it has been messy for the, the last couple of years, um, and it has been difficult to sort it out because, on one hand, I, I want to blame all of us outside and the powers that could have uh, helped deal with that situation. But at the same time, I'm also aware that solutions cannot be parachuted into a country and they work if the people of the country themselves don't confront the problems and actually deal with them and then provide how people can support to finally get the solution they want. So what is going on is, you know, people are running up and down. It's African Union, it's East African leaders, it's the UN, it's Europe, it's US, it's everybody's. Actually, they are very busy. <laughs> At least busy in the movement, back and forth. But what we don't see is a, is a solution coming out of that. And there are various reasons for that happening. And uh, not all of them are good reasons. So we keep hoping that Burundi themselves can get tired of being in this mess they have uh, uh, been in, and it's up to them to build on any support from uh, wherever to, to actually overcome whatever difficulties they have. Is it on? Oh, sorry. Hello, Mr. President. My name is Joseph Cho, and I'm a junior here at Harvard. So I read recently that you completed part of your military training in North Korea. We did what? In North Korea. You completed part of your military training there. We completed? Yes. Um, and uh, I know that I'm not that's aware. what I read online. Um, I'm not and I know aware. that you. Um, I'm not aware of that. <laughs> so also, so, after your presidential election went in 2010, which was 
arguably pretty controversial. Um, I know that the North Korean regime offered their congratulations to you. Um, so I was just wondering I'm sure how they, they did. <laughs> how your personal relationship with that country affects your diplomacy and informs your approach to it. Um, and also, I know a lot of people say that, or I know there are some people who may think that there's a lot in common between your country and North Korea, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Because we are neighbors, or, or what? <laughs> There's a, a long distance between Rwanda and... Uh, but I, I think matters to do with North Korea, again, I think there was something mentioned earlier. We leave matters of North Korea to the big powers. We leave matters of how to manage North Korea to United States and China and others, but for a country like ours, bothering to be caught up in the situation around North Korea, I think it is a stretch of imagination. It's up here. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, my name is Graham Bashai. I'm a freshman here at uh, Harvard College. And uh, my question is about the AU. Um, so in the wake of much doubt being cast uh, towards the effectiveness of continental unions, um, a sh kind of shift away from Pan-Africanism and a doubt in the abilities recently of the AU, what do you see the role of the AU um, being in the next 10 years, 20 years uh, towards the development of the continent? The role of the AU, the African Union, is, is, is a very important one. Uh, and Right from the beginning, the reason it was created, the reason there was a shift from organization of African unity to AU was realization of the new times we are in. And it was to help bring together African countries so that we, we, we don't act individually as 54 countries that we are, but rather uh, increasingly get together and act as Africans. Uh, and, and AU was supposed to help to achieve that. And I think a great deal has been achieved, and a lot more is yet to be achieved. That's what we currently, people are looking at. There is self-examination to understand what is it that we have achieved, what is it that we wanted to achieve, and what is, are the problems that stopped us achieving everything we wanted. So there is that uh, uh, self-examination going on, there is urge for improvement that we are looking at. But so in, in 10 years, we hope uh, African Union can continue bringing Africa together and so that Africa acts together as a continent in many uh, places. Uh, and I hope that unity can be achieved in another five, 10 years. Yes, over here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming, Mr. President. I'm Ashley Heacock, and I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. And I've lived in Africa, and I'm very interested in the development of Africa um, as a whole. And I see your country as sort of similar to Singapore, in that you have achieved very rapid growth. And Singapore, I mean, the, the change there can be attributed to Lee Kuan Yew, and also, I think, in Rwanda, it can be attributed to your leadership. Um, 
And both of you as leaders are more concerned about the development of your country and the legacy that you will leave rather than making money for yourself and your friends, um, as we see in some other countries. Mm -hmm. So can the progress that you have seen be replicated in other parts of Africa? Um, are there any policies in particular that you think would be helpful? Or will it take a leader that is more focused on legacy rather than making money? Hmm. Well, uh, uh, I'm, I'm proud and happy to be associated with Singapore. And we are actually associated. We, we work very closely. We relate very well. Uh, in many areas. We are happy to learn from their own experiences and um, they have uh, given us uh, some, some way forward. Um, so, yes, there, there is need. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think my job would be to provide any uh, prescription for what other Africans do or what anybody does. Uh, but we spend most of our time wanting to see what we can do for ourselves that can improve the well-being of our people and improve the country and so on and so forth. But by that, if where we have succeeded, it also means others in similar problems like ours can say, well, if Rwanda is doing it and making good progress, it means we can also do it. Uh, and here, in our case, Rwanda, as you know, is not known to have much in terms of natural resources. Therefore, we, we have operated under severe constraints in terms of resources, if you will, but still we have made good progress. And, and, and that relates to the other point you have also touched, which is if leaders were there just to you know, benefit themselves, I don't think under these constraints you would really be successful as a country. Maybe you can be successful as individuals who have done some wrong things that benefit you, but I don't think it would benefit the country. So, and we have tried within this resource constrained situation to uh, do our best, but still made good progress. So operating from Muscasti, we have really created a lot of value for, for the country, for the people, and given them a chance to be able to realize other goals we are working toward. So there are lessons to learn from what we have done, and we have learned lessons from other situations like we have done with Singapore's situation, but even other African countries, there are lessons we have drawn from, from them, and, and they have made us better people. Yes, over here, sir. Uh, good evening, uh, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Fidelis Chimombe. I'm from Zimbabwe, uh, which is a failed state. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, 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 I'm really proud of uh, what Rwanda has achieved uh, over the past uh, 15 years under your guidance. Um, recently, Uganda uh, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly chose to extend the term limit for presidents. I think people of Rwanda chose what they wanted, but um, history, is, uh, history of Africa has always told us that uh, whenever presidents try to extend term limits, 
doesn't always come out good. Um, let's take a, take a look at uh, Uganda. Uh, President Seven did the same. Then now that he had uh, infinite term limits, he just, he just slaughtered his way uh, yeah. to power. Um, nobody doubts that he's a good leader. But uh, if I may know, why did you decide to um, go for a third term in 2017? Um, but I think at some point, maybe a bad leader will come, uh, will not be as good as you, will use the infinite term limits to slaughter his way to power and destroy um, uh, Rwanda. Why didn't you set an example of, uh, of, 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 ter of term limits, uh, which will allow new blood and new ideas to come in? The, the answer is simple. Probably there are things you miss when somebody is talking. You see, you may have a point. When presidents have sought to extend they are staying in power. Those problems may happen, or have even happened in some cases, right? I agree with you. But the simple difference is I have not sought to stay in power. I have not. So that is the difference. It's what I'm saying. You see, if, if some people seek to stay in power when their people don't want them, and it has happened. We have seen it in Africa, as you said. That will always end in a disaster. So is it the same case with Rwanda? I'm telling you, no. That's one. Uh, so how? How do I deal with this situation? I, I, I asked it earlier on. How do I deal with this situation? Do I? We still have can have time to, to have you know to talk about this. Do I tell these people of Rwanda to and say you know you want me to stay, but no, thank you, and I'm going. Uh, well, then. I can do that, by the way, so, so possible. But you have to weigh under what circumstances, why would you do that? Just because of that bad example, that, which is different from what we are talking about. This is, uh, and, and, and in fact, there's a bit of confusion again. Term limits have not actually been removed. Only the terms have been shortened, in actual fact. That's what I mean. In, in the referendum and what followed after, term limits have not been removed. They have been maintained and only terms shortened. What has happened is a singular exception they have created, which you can still argue, does it fall within their rights to do so or not. That's a different issue. So two things. I have not sought extension of my stay in power. I have not. I will still say. Saying that I have agreed with the people what they have asked me to do is not the same as saying I have sought to stay in power. Those are two different things. Number two. Terms have not been removed. 
term limits have not the term limits have not been removed. Terms, the length of the term have been has been shortened. That's what is happening. If that helps you to have a, a, a different view, let's uh, you, you should work on that. I'm afraid we have time only for one more question, and you are the lucky winner. Lucky me. <laughs> Your Excellency, Mr. President, thank you so much for being here. Mm -hmm. My name is Lizzie Bainiamisa. I'm a mid-career Mason fellow from Ghana. I want to start by thanking you for allowing us to enter your country without a visa. We'll make sure that we take advantage of that. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm an energy infrastructure developer, and infrastructure is a big part of the story of Africa. Um, I think as much as the story of Rwanda is about you being a leader, it's much about you empowering and inspiring the people under you to have the success for Rwandans by Rwandans. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how infrastructure development has played into this story, uh, maybe how you decided on policy, uh, regulatory frameworks, and how you ensure that Rwandans and Rwandan businesses and capital markets are part of that development, mm -hmm. not just foreign investors coming in, spending on Rwanda, but in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a long story, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but again, I think you have more or less answered it, because we, we have, uh, other than in our vision, what we have done uh, is to invest in our people, in their health, their education, and, and, and development of skills, and we have invested in technology, we have invested in infrastructure, all that to try and, you know, make our people uh, an improved and a better asset that they are for our country. In fact, central to, to, central to our continued uh, development and, and, and growth has been our people, how much we have empowered our people, but we empower them by creating those other things uh, and making sure that they build on them, given the skills and knowledge they have acquired to do better. So in infrastructure, we have, and, and infrastructure generally is, is in a poor state in, in, in the whole continent, or, or rather, there is a lack of infrastructure, I should say. And there's a need to invest more in infrastructure, whether it is roads, telecommunications, railways, you know, and specifically in the area of energy. There is, uh, you said you, you, you are working on that, but energy is key and is, is lacking also in, to find Sub-Saharan Africa, the total of that, what, what we have is, more or less what one country in Latin America has is, is, uh, is, is scandalous. And, and of course, it, it impedes our development and how fast we can move. So we will concentrate on, um, on investment in energy and in our people and good governance to make sure that we get the best value for this money invested. That's, that's what we can do. Well, we're out of time. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you. You know, uh, if I could just take a word, I'm reminded tonight uh,
of an old essay by a man called Max Weber that uh, the title of that essay is Politics and Vocation, as a vocation. And in it, he said that politics is the worst job to have because it's filled with impossible decisions that are impossible to achieve the two things that you want to achieve at the right time. There's conflicts all the time between you cannot do the right thing and the good thing at the same time. In this context, it came up in the context of development and democracy between uh, preserving freedom of expression but allowing hate speech which may lead to a horrible kind of violence, between uh, continuing a, an upward trajectory in a stable frame versus opening things up and taking a, a, a gamble on the next guy, so impossible choices. And I thank you very much for uh, creating this occasion to express your views and to allow all of us to reflect on the impossible choices that political leaders face. Thank it, you very it, much. It becomes sir. even more impossible if other people have to make decisions for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.